Well, hey, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 20. And, uh, you know, let me just set this up a little bit if I can. So we, we talked, obviously, uh, last night and this morning about the gospel. And I, I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about what it means to walk out this messy process of life with God. Because in some ways, coming to faith is the easy part because you didn't do jack to earn it anyway, right? It's walking it out that's the hard part. And so I, I want to talk a little bit about that. And one of the things I appreciate about the Bible, and maybe you've learned this to be true as well, is oftentimes you read characters in the Bible, you read their stories, and you realize, man, I, I kind of relate to that. And he paid the dumb tax. And so it, it'd be really good to learn from him, you know, because the problem with learning by firsthand experience, it's an effective teacher. Um, so, like, when you were in high school, you remember, you, like, you gave your girl your letterman's jacket, and then she showed up to school the, the next day with someone else's? And so you got mad, you went, you hit the lock, and you broke your hand. So all your buddies laughed at you and signed your cast and made fun of you for six weeks while you looked like a fool, right? Well, that's personal experience. It's a good educator, but we don't have enough bones in our body to break to learn all the lessons we need to learn. So if we could learn from other people's experience, your buddy hits the locker, your buddy is in a cask, you sign it, you're laughing at him, but you still learn the lesson, that's where the gold is. And in many ways in our Bible, we have men that have gone before us that have paid the dumb tax, and Abraham happens to be one of them. Um, Abraham's an interesting character. He's called by God in chapter, end of chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12, called by God to leave his family and really begin as the first patriarch to live out this messy process of life with God. But before we get into his story, let me set it up a little bit with um, a little personal with mine, and maybe you can relate to this. So it was 2015, and I was in a bad place. Do any of you, by the way, any of you on Instagram follow the, the Instagram account Kookslams? If you're into, like, watching stupid people hurt themselves, it's absolutely fantastic. And so I, I follow Kookslams. And one of, the, one of the consistent Kookslams that you see is the guy on the top of the hill with his skateboard who's looking down the hill, and he's, he's thinking, I got this. And sure enough, he starts out, and he's doing pretty good, but then he's just booking, right? And as he's going, he starts getting speed wobbles, and you just know as this is happening, he's going to eat gravel. This is not going to go well. You can see it coming, and in fact, I'll be watching it, and I see him start to do that, and I'll, fl I'll flip it up. I'm like, I don't want to watch that. It's just, it's just not going to be pretty. In 2015, I had speed wobbles. So in 2015, our church was growing. I was teaching at midweek, 8, 30, 10, 11, 35 and 7, so teaching six times a week, plus a men's Bible study, plus leading our staff, plus I was a dad, plus two kids. Um, I was not doing well, and um, I was feeling the speed wobbles, and Brent was around in similar seasons, he, and he saw this come. I mean, there's just, you just know that this is going to end poorly. You're going to do something stupid, and thanks be to God, I was not turning to lesser things, but I sure wanted to. And if I can be candid, I'd come home for a glass of wine, and I'd want a second, and then a margarita. Um, I'd be looking at stuff on the Internet, and I know I'm a click away from it, and I'm, I'm tempted to do it. I found uh, inside something was happening where I would just feel overwhelmed, and I'd go, what the heck was that? I'm sitting in my office, and I just started to cry. I'm like, why are you crying? Like, something is wrong. And so... I did for the first time in my life something I've never done. I tapped out, and I went to my elders, and I said, guys, i got to be honest with you. I'm not in a good place, and I'm, I've, I'm just afraid if I continue to do what I've been doing, I'm going to do something stupid and disqualify myself. I need your help. 
And my elders were great. They stepped in and they sent me on a sabbatical. They said, all right, you're, you're out. Um, we want you to go get some help. And so I found a, what I thought was a leadership coach in Franklin, Tennessee. His name was Jack. Little did I know I was about to get jacked because I went out to see this guy. And he goes, tell me about yourself. And I said, well, you know, I'm kind of a type A, a little bit driven, kind of a grinder. He goes, yeah, you're probably going to have to let that go. Anyway, keep going. I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, tell me about your family. I'm like, what do they have to do with this? Like, I'm here that you're going to help me, like, restructure the church and so I can better position myself for more effective leadership long term. And you want to talk about my dad? I don't want to talk about my dad. He's not even here. Like, why do we got to talk about him? He goes, tell me about your family. So I start talking about my family. And um, he says, hey, let me ask you a question. And by the way, my family, I have a lot of trauma in my family. Mom left, as I mentioned, when I was nine. My brother got into, um, started smoking pot, then got into cocaine. I got beat up almost every day until I, he was seven years older. And so I finally said, you're going to have to freaking earn it because I'm going to get my butt kicked anyway, so let's go. I mean, it was just not a healthy environment, all right? Um, my stepmom that was there, I told you um, she was in for like a year because my brother was going down the hall to, to uh, her daughter. And they were having sex. And so it was just not a healthy environment. I lived with my girlfriend in high school because my dad was unemployed and then took a job in L.A. And my girlfriend's like, you should live with me. I was like, that's a great idea. So lived with my girlfriend. Just like a dysfunction, 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 dysfunction. So I'm, I'm relaying this. And the guy goes, hey, let me ask you a question. When you walk into a grocery store as the pastor and you see somebody who comes to your church, do you feel the need to power up? I'm like, oh, Yeah. Absolutely. He goes, tell me about that. I'm like, wow, you know, I see somebody. I'm like, hey, what's up? How you doing? You know, I just feel the need. Like, I can't just walk by. I mean, I got to, like, show up. He goes, yeah, but do you feel the need to, like, power up? I'm like, yeah, I really do. He says, yeah, that's manipulation. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, you're manipulating. It's like a con man thing. You're, you're powering up to win them over, but that's not authentically you, is it? I'm like, no, not really. He goes, tell me about your anger problem. I'm like, what are you talking about, anger problem? I don't have an anger problem. And he says, no, you do have an anger problem. I go, what makes you say that? You don't even know me. He says, you're nice. I said, I thought nice was good. He goes, no, kindness is a fruit of the spirit. Nice is hiding something. I go, well, I wouldn't call it an anger problem. It's just like right, right underneath here is the ability to do anything to anyone, maybe more than they're willing to do to me. Like, look, I, I played football in college. I paid for my degree in violence. Like, the, the ability to be violent actually is the only reason I have an education. And so it's not that I get angry. It's that I'm just an intense person. I'm just passionate. It's like the Hulk. The secret of the Hulk is not that he gets angry. It's what? He's always angry. And the guy says to me, he goes, man, that sounds exhausting. That you see somebody in a grocery store and you power up and you manipulate, and all the while you're holding down this anger and this rage. That sounds exhausting. I go, yeah, well, that's just who I am. He says, no, it's not. That's who you became. I'm like, okay, what do you mean by that? He said, all of the trauma that you experienced in your life, you just learned how to get what you needed to survive the manipulation. And you learned how to just be intense enough to survive the anger. That's who you became. That's not who you are. 
That was a really interesting conversation, and forgive me for getting a little Freudian here, but stay with me for just a moment. That's who I became. I remember thinking after I left, you know, Jack's place, and I was like, man, this guy, I, I did not expect this. I did not expect to have this conversation. I wasn't really looking for this kind of interaction, and yet I think he might be on to something. And uh, in the process of dealing with some of my brokenness, um, he invited me to invite the Lord into my brokenness. Like, let's talk about how you felt when these things happened. Let's talk about what you went through. Let's embrace that in, in a way that brings God into your life. And the more we looked back at my past, the more we found two things, two things that I wonder if you can relate to. There was some gold in the experiences I went through. I mean, I, I learned how to be independent. Um, I learned how to... Um, I want to say survive, but what I mean by that is like cook my own food, do my own laundry. Um, so there's, there's good there. I, I learned how to persevere through difficulty. Uh, I learned how to endure suffering. Um, but there was also some shadow that I talked through. And in my dysfunction, it, it wasn't simply the manipulation and the anger. It's the lesser things I turned to to try to numb those things. And maybe you can relate to that. So I started drinking at an early age. I found feeling abandonment from mom. If I can get a girl to like me, that would be good. And so I never went without a girlfriend. If I could get her and her friend and her friend into bed, that would solve this thing I was feeling, this loneliness inside. I tried all of those things. That's the shadow that came out of that. And, and I just wonder uh, if you can relate. Maybe not to my story, but do you have, as you look back in your past, things that you went through that you might even today say, well, that's who I am. And I, I wonder, I wonder if you look at that and say, well, is that really who I am or is that who I became? And if you're willing to lean into that and say, well, maybe there are some things and maybe they're not as heinous as mine, but we all have because of the trauma of sin in life that we go through, we all have gold and we all have shadow. The irony of it is most of us never even notice and here's the problem. If we don't deal with the shadow, the shadow doesn't go away. It just stays with you. My anger issue just stayed with me. No, I, I wasn't getting in fights on the weekend. Those people get arrested. I got in a fight on a Saturday night at Bulldog Stadium, and I got an MVP trophy. But those things don't go away. Here's the other thing. Those things, if you don't deal with them, you pass them on to those around you. And if you're a, a dad here, fellas, you need to know that you can teach what you know, but you will reproduce in your kids what you are. And so one of the things that would be of benefit to all of us is to do a little digging and find out what is the gold and what is the shadow. So to Abraham. Abraham, as I mentioned, called in chapter 12. Abraham follows a God he did not know that he had read nothing about because there was no Bible, and he pursues God by faith. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham is next-level stud, and he followed the Lord. He's also next-level awful because about every other page in the book of Genesis from chapter 12 on, he's doing something that you and I are going, you big idiot, and that's why we can relate to him because his story is in some ways 
an example of what it means to live out this messy process of life with God. One step forward, two steps back. If you uh, keep your finger in chapter 20 and just glance at chapter 12, something happens that sets up what we're going to do in 20. In chapter 12, verses uh, 11 and following, Abraham now comes out of uh, the land, or comes into the land, rather, and uh, he comes near Egypt, and there's, there's a famine in the land. And Abraham, the man of faith, in this moment, doesn't do real well. He doesn't trust God. And there's a famine in the land, but at Costco in Egypt, so he says, hey, I'll tell you what, Sarah, there's food there. There's not food here. Let's go there. But here's the thing. In that culture, there was a pretty common practice that if your wife was smoking hot, that the easy way for the king to get your wife was to kill you and take her. And so what Abraham says in chapter uh, 12, verses 11 and following, he says, in, uh, it come now, um, when we get near Egypt, he says to Sarah, now look, you're a beautiful woman, verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, uh, and you say, this is my wife, they're going to kill me, but they will let you live. And so in verse 13, so please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you. Okay, do you see who Abram's, or Abraham's focused on in this moment? It's like himself. And so you begin to see the shadow in his life. He's dishonest. He's manipulative. He's self-serving. He's self-protecting. Keep that in mind uh, because you're going to see that now in chapter 20. In chapter 20, it says that Abram now, in verses 1 and following, journeyed from there towards the land of the Negev, and he settled between Kadesh and Shur, and he settled near or sojourned near Gerar. And in verse 2, Abraham says to his wife, she is my sister, or says of his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, now the king of Gerar, takes Sarah into her house. Now there's all kinds of messianic implications here because we're promised in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the Abrahamic covenant, that the, uh, the Messiah is going to come from the line of Abraham. And at this point, Abraham uh, has got no kids. And so now his wife, whom the Messiah is going to come through, is now in the bedroom of uh, Abimelech, this king. Not a good situation. And uh, here's Abraham now, the man of faith, who, as you can see, reverts back to his old way of life. Reverts back to his old manipulation, his old uh, deceptive ways, his old dishonesty, his self-serving, self-preserving him ways. That's his besetting sin. That's the thing dogs and plagues him all of his life, like manipulation and anger has dogged and plagued mine. Can you think for a moment, without passing the mic around, what's your besetting sin? What's your issue? That issue that you're like, dog, con it again? I'm doing that again? I want you to just get that image in your mind, because you're going to need that as we walk through this story. What is the issue in you that if we followed you, we'd say, dude, you did that here, and you did that back then, and you did that back then, and and old habits are hard to break. Do you have your issue in your mind? If you're confused as to what your issue might be, just ask your buddy. He knows what your issue is, all right? I want you to keep that in mind. So this, this concept of walking out this messy process of life with God reminds me of Romans 6, 7, and 8. For those of you who are familiar with the book of Romans, it's a phenomenal three-chapter section in his book. Because in chapter 6, what he talks about is we who are in Christ are identified with Christ in the likeness of his death. That as Jesus was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, that we too, Romans 6, would walk in a newness of life. And so he says to, to um, know that your old self was crucified with him, 
and that this body of sin is done away with, consider yourself to be dead to sin and present yourself to God. That's Romans 6. If you teach Romans 6 and stop there, it's one of the most frustrating passages in all of your Bible. Because what Romans 6 is saying is, hey, friend, when you trusted in Jesus Christ, the mastery and obligation to sin, that old those old habits that you keep falling back on, the mastery, the obligation of those things was broken because of Christ. He set you free from those things. You know, you're no longer obligated or under the authority of those things. You don't have to turn to them anymore. And if we stop there, it's frustrating because we all still live in the struggle, do we not? Which begs the question then, if we're free because of the gospel, the finished work of Christ and the ongoing embracing of the gospel, why do we turn back to it? I'll give you a, a great example. Forgive me for using football metaphors, but hopefully you can connect. It is man camp, by the way. So I played for Coach Sweeney, Jim Sweeney, who was legendary. I mean, J Jim Sweeney Field is the field at Bulldog Stadium. And I, tell, I told some guys walking up, when Coach Sweeney was sober, he was amazing. And when he was drunk, he was even better. I mean, he was just an amazing coach. And if Coach called you when you played for him and he said, hey, look, you need to get over here and run. He didn't want to argue about it. He didn't want to talk to you about it. You got your butt up and you ran. One time, these guys got in a fight. He goes, you want to fight? And he had guys doing up-downs. You know what an up-downs are? You run a place and you do like a push-up or a burpee or whatever. And every time they'd come up, he'd hit them. Bam! But this is back when you could do that. Bam! I mean, he's just knocking dudes out. So this was coach. And if he called you and said, run, you ran, period. But see, then I graduated. And coach, before he died, could have called me as a graduate and said, hey, look, you need to get over here. And could I go? Yes. But what would you think if you drove by Bulldog Stadium and you saw me out there doing up-downs with coach? You'd be like, why are you doing that? He's not an authority over you anymore. He doesn't have any reign in your life anymore. You can go and do that, but that's kind of foolish to do that. Do you see it? See, without Jesus Christ in your life, guys, you're still a slave to sin, and you have no other obligation but to sin. There is no power that has freed you from the mastery of sin. But when you're in Christ, like bolt cutters that now snap the chain that, that sort of yoked you to who you used to be, you get to now live in a newness of life. But thanks be to God, we don't have Romans 6 without Romans 7. Because in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul's like, oh, man, what the heck? The thing that I want to do, I don't do. The thing that I don't want to do, I find myself doing again. I find it true that the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Can you relate? I mean, that's the Christian life, is it not? That's Paul saying, hey, look, man, the thing that I want to do, I don't do. And doggone it, I keep doing the thing I hate. What is wrong with me? But if you teach Romans 7 without chapter 8, then you've missed the full story. Because in chapter 8, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. The idea is, in Christ, we are free and no longer condemned. That's the power, the ongoing power and the work of the gospel. And you say, well, what's that, what's that got to do with Abraham? 
Abraham is learning how to walk out this messy process of life with God, and he's realizing it's one step forward and two steps back, and he's trying to figure out what it looks like to live in relationship with God, and it is not always pretty. So when I said this morning, people are always bagging on Christians, like, oh, a bunch of hypocrites. I'm like, and we have room for one more. The idea is we are all trying to walk out this process with God. It's called sanctification. So we introduced imputation this morning. Let me introduce another big 50-cent theological word. It's called sanctification. It means to set aside or set apart to be holy. Here's what I want us to understand about sanctification. There's three parts to sanctification. One is called positional sanctification, which means when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are considered holy and set apart based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's the same concept as being justified. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's positional. Then there's progressive sanctification. That is just like the street fight that's called Monday. I mean, that is like, how do I not take that second look? And and how do I push away from whatever your besetting issue is? That's progressive. Perfect sanctification is the promise that one day, fellas, one day we will set aside the perishable, we will put on imperishable, we will be raised to be with Christ, no more sin, no more suffering, no more nothing, no more struggle, it is on. We will be in the presence of the ever-increasing glory of God in heaven forever and forever without sin. The bad news is, all you got to do is die. Because perfect sanctification only comes when he takes us home or he returns. Which means, fellas, we're stuck in the middle. Right where God wants us. Living out this progressive sanctification. Living out this ongoing sense of one step forward and two steps back. I was reading through 2 Corinthians. I don't know if you've read that in a while. Paul, the Apostle Paul, sees some things. He's like, I don't even know how to talk about that. He, like, sees glory. And, and, and what he sees is so awesome that the Lord's like, yeah, you can't talk to anybody about that. That, that was between you and me. And to make sure you don't, I'm going to give you what Paul calls a thorn in his flesh to keep him from exalting himself. We don't know quite what it was, maybe bad eyesight, maybe some ailment of some sort. What we do know is whatever it is, it keeps him low. And the irony is, in his lowness, he learns the principle that in his weakness, God's strength is perfected. And he learns to boast, not in what he's good at or his strength, but in his weakness, because boasting in his weakness brings glory and honor to God. The psalmist says this, to search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. There is such a beauty in us finding our weakness and naming it. By the way, sin grows in the darkness and sin grows in isolation. So if you've got a besetting issue in your life and you're not being honest about it, uh, you will never be able to deal with it. You remember when you were in elementary school and you'd be running down like on the, on the grass or whatever and some jack wagon would come up and trip you? hate those guys. I was always the fat kid in elementary school, and I'd always get tripped. I hated that. Drove me crazy. Well, look, if you don't own your sin, if you don't name your sin, it just sneaks up behind you like a jack wagon and trips you. You got to own it and put a name to it. 
Because when you, if we claim to have fellowship with God and yet, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. There's such a joy in saying, God, search me. What is my issue? What are my sins? And by the way, they're there. So quit living in denial. They're there. All I got to do is call your wife. She knows what they are too. And so let's own them and walk in it. Psalm 51.6 says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret part. There is such a freedom that comes when we walk in light. And I want to just celebrate, if that's even possible, this idea of the ongoing, never-ending, continual, progressive, Spirit of God-initiated process of continually inviting God to reveal the shadow in your life. Because as you do that, you're embracing the gospel. See, we talked about the gospel this morning, and I mentioned to you that the gospel, yes, is at a point in time. So if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, fellas, you need that marked moment. Mine was March 23rd, 1993. You need to trust Christ at a point in time. But here we are as followers of Jesus. We need to embrace the gospel over time. We need the gospel today because, by the way, the shadow is still present in my life. God does not, at the moment of salvation, select all of the nonsense that was your past and delete the files. I wish that was the case. That is not which simply means we're always going to have these issues that we need to develop a sensitivity towards so that we can walk with God. And this side of glory, this side of the grade, this side of his return, there will always be shadow in your life. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Back to Abraham. Chapter 20, verse 3 now. God, in his grace. Remember now, if you remember like 10 years ago, we talked about Abraham said to his wife, say that she's my sister, and then she ended up in Abimelech's household. And so now God comes to Abimelech in Abraham's disobedience in a dream and comes to Abimelech and says, Behold, you are a dead man. Because the woman that you have taken, she is married. And Abimelech was like, Whoa, 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 whoa. Lord, would you slay a nation even if they are blameless? Did this guy not say himself that she was his sister? And did she herself not say that he was my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hand, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yeah, I know exactly what you've done in the integrity of your heart that you have done this. And I have also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Do you see the grace of God in this moment? Abraham just stepped all over himself to preserve himself. And God's like, ah, here we go again. Keeps Abimelech off his wife, protects Abraham, protects the promise of the Messiah. God showed up in Abraham's disobedience. Now, in verse 8, Abimelech, rightly so, is ticked. He rises early. He calls all of his boys together. He's like, you're not going to believe what this guy did, this so-called follower of God. Verse 9, uh, he says, why have you, he brings Abraham in. He goes, why have you done this to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom this great sin? Here's Abraham, the patriarch, getting rebuked by a pagan king. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. This was not right. 
Now, verse 10, though, is critical. Abimelech said to Abraham, what have you encountered that you have done this thing? What happened in your life that this is who you became? See, Abimelech's doing a little digging in his life. What happened in your life? What, what have you encountered that you have done this thing? Now, keep in mind, uh, Gerar is just down the road from Sodom, which just a chapter previously just got nuked. And so he saw it. And now here's Abraham, the man of faith, lying and he's like, no, 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 don't do to me what you did to those guys because we can still see the smoke rising from the, uh, the ash heap. Don't do to me what you did to them. He was witness to the power of God. And in verse 11, Abraham says, look, I thought surely that there was no fear of God in this place, and I thought that you would kill me because of my wife. And in this moment, Abimelech's believe, or behaving rather more like a believer than Abraham is. It's embarrassing for Abraham, the man of God, this man of faith. And in verse 12, I want you to notice Abraham's justification. He goes, well, besides, I mean, she actually is my sister, kind of the daughter of my father, not really the daughter of my mother. It's a long story. Anyway, she became my wife, which is very much like Adam going, well, it's really not my fault. It's kind of her fault. In fact, he, he takes it even to the step further, and he says, then it came about that when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you should give me, that when we interact with anybody, just say you're my sister. So, again, it's not even his fault. It's kind of her fault. Really, it's God's fault. But what I want you to notice is the bottom of verse 13. Everywhere we go, he says, say of me, he is my brother. So, to be fair, there's only twice in your Bible in a 25-year period in Abraham's life that he does this. That's recorded in the text. But if you look at verse 13, you get the idea this wasn't like a one-off or a two-off. This was their normal way of relating. My normal way of relating when push comes to shove is manipulation and anger. They come very naturally to me. It comes out without even thinking to me. What was your besetting sin in your mind? Can you think of it? Because I would bet, given a moment, and I don't know what your triggers are. Might be getting cut off in traffic. Might be you're stressed, bored at home. Might be in the shower. Might be that she's you know, put you on the couch for a couple of days. I don't know what your issue is, okay? Might be you just got paid and the guy on the corner is holding some stuff for you. I don't know what your issue is. But here's what I know is in those moments, those issues come back with ease, don't they? Unless we bring the gospel into it. And that's what's happening here with our boy Abraham. Paul told Timothy, by the way, in 1 Timothy 5, he said, the sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. Sins of others follow after Likewise, also, good deeds are evident and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. His point is you can't hide your junk over time. So, look, I, I know you're trying to be good, and I know you're trying to, like, get a handle on your junk. I know you're trying to, like, man, your, man up and, and, like, pull up your bootstraps and be sober or whatever your issue is. Can I just be honest with you? You can't handle it on your own. You can't manage it on your own. And you were never meant to. It's not a sign of weakness. In fact, it's a sign of incredible bravery to go, oh, actually, that's not the way God designed me. God didn't create me to just try to gut out life on myself to be good. By the way, churches are not helping us in this regard. Because what we're saying is, hey, we want you to be good, so try hard to be good. How's that going for you, by the way? Try hard to be good, and then you fail. Try hard to be good, and then you fail. So at that point, you're like, well, I'm not getting the return on the investment anyway. 
So I may as well not try so hard. And I don't do so well. So then we do in that moment what every good Christian does. We just fake it. Which is why churches are full of hypocrites. Because we're trying to morally fix ourselves opposed to inviting the gospel in. And the gospel is the only thing that can make us new. It's a frustrating process to be in. The other problem, by the way, with these, uh, these shadows is if you just fast forward to chapter 26, you're going to see Isaac, Abraham's son, whom God eventually provides for him, get in a pinch, and sure enough, he's afraid he's going to be taken captive in his wife, you know, because his wife's good looking. And so he does what his daddy did and said, say that she is my sister. So we pass that on to our kids. Well, look at verses 22, uh, turn to chapter 21, actually. Look at verses 22 and following. Watch what Abraham learns. He's learning to walk out this faith in God. We don't know how much time has elapsed, but in verse 22 of the next chapter, chapter 21, it came about at that time, Abimelech now and his commander of his army now speak to Abraham, and they say, God is with you in all that you do. So obviously he can see this this Abimelech, this pagan king, can see that God is blessing Abraham. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity. Now, why would the pagan king have to come to the man of faith and say, hey, look, don't, don't rip me off or my kids or my grandkids? Because that is Abraham's reputation of looking out for himself. And sure enough, they end up making uh, an agreement together. And in the midst of that, Abraham has a conversation with him about some wells. We're not going to get into that because it doesn't add value to where we're heading as we wrap up. What I do want you to notice is verses 33 and 34. It's peculiar, but I think it's of note. Abraham now, in verse 33, plants what my Bible calls a tamarisk tree. Do any of your Bibles have a different reading than that? Tamarisk tree? Okay. It's an interesting tree. Now, who cares he plants a tree? Keep in mind. We tend to think that modern is smart and ancient is dumb. And Abraham was brilliant. So botany expert, military expert. Uh, so he plants a tree that thrives in this environment. Not indigenous, by the way, to Beersheba, which is where this tree is planted by the gates of Beersheba. Not indigenous here, but he plants it. It's got deep roots, so it finds the groundwater. It's got shallow roots, so it picks up the uh, rainwater that comes with flash floods in the desert. Brilliant tree. But here's the thing about this tree. Any of you farmers in here grow fruit, tree fruit? What do you guys grow? Okay, great. So if I plant a peach tree, how, how many years? I plant a peach tree. How many years before I'm going to have peaches? Two years. It's aggressive. Two, three maybe, right? Okay. Um, so if I plant a tree, I'm going to benefit from this tree. A tamarisk tree is one of the slowest growing trees you can plant. It takes decades, plural, to reach full grown. It's a salt cedar it receives water uh, throughout the night. It, it produces a little bit of salt on the leaves so you can eat it. It um, restores you if there's um, you know, dehydration issues. And then it's a cooling, sort of a cooling benefit as you are under the tree in its shade. But it takes decades, plural, to reach full maturity. Why would a guy who's 100 years old plant a tree that he's not going to experience anything from for decades to come? Unless it's not for him. Abraham has lived for himself at every turn. Something's changing. Abraham plants a tree that won't benefit him. It'll, it'll benefit his kids and his grandkids and his great-grandkids. He's beginning to see that the process of living his life with God 
is a process that's going to be a generational process. And he finally deals with this stuff. Instead of planting a tree that would be of benefit to him, he plants a tree that would be of benefit to others, and he's finally dealing with it. Can I close and give you maybe three things, fellas, to think about? And I, I hate to say three things because pastors are notorious for three things, and they all start with the letter P. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Here, here's what I want these three things. Here's how they will relate to you. If you think about that besetting sin that's in your life, and, and you find yourself frustrated that you're living that Romans 7, like, you know, um, you find the principle true that there's nothing good that dwells in you that's in your flesh. The willing is present in you, but the doing of the good is not. If you find yourself frustrated, you're like, what do I do with that? I got you three things. There are three things that are going to begin to transform you into the life that God has for you, the life God wants for you in intimacy with Christ. The first is God's spirit. This is not a you fix. You cannot fix this. You need to wave the white flag and say something's wrong with me. God, would you, would you minister to me? And you need to lean into God's spirit. Here's what you're going to find as you begin to lean in with God's spirit. God is at work in your life. The scripture promises us that he is at work in your life to willing to work for his good pleasure. Yes, the Bible says that you should work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But read the next verse. That it is God who's the one who's doing the work. What God has begun in you, God will be faithful to complete. There, there is a sense that God is working in your life and wants to. So you've got to listen to what the Spirit of God is doing in your life. How do you know what that is? Well, as you're doing life, you're going to hear the, the small, still voice of the Lord in your life. It's like, hey, what are you doing, bro? That's the way the Lord speaks to me. Hey, what are you doing, bro? Why, why are you doing that? Why are, you get, why are you powering up? Stop. You don't need to do that. And, and as you listen to the Spirit of God in your life, the Spirit of God is doing a work in you. Second thing, not just his spirit, but his word, his word. It's amazing to me how many Christians are biblically illiterate. Well, how do you know who God is? He's revealed himself in his word. So let's dig into the word. You're like, yeah, but I don't know. I can't really connect. I don't, I don't understand any of those why, why would somebody call their kid that? You know, that's a crazy name, or I don't, I don't know about the history. Well, it's like, yeah, because you don't read it. So just get into it and see what God has for you. And what the Bible will do is two things in your life. One, it will affirm what is right, because it's not all sucky. I mean, there's a lot of that, but it's not all that. I mean, there, there's times when you and I behave in a way, and God's like, that's what I'm talking about, baby. Yes. And that's the affirmation of the word of God. Go and do that's like you, that's like us. Yes but it will affirm and it will expose. So I started reading passages about, like, um, anger. And um, <laughs> Jack asked me, he's like, okay, so rage. Let's talk about that. Which part of the fruit of the Spirit is rage? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Am I missing something? Where's rage? I'm like, shut up. But he was right. So it both affirms and exposes. So God's Spirit, God's word. And the third, God's people. God's people. Uh, if you are isolated, you will find it very difficult to walk intimately with Jesus. Because he never called you to be isolated. Christianity is a team sport. We need each other. And uh, if you're not sure what your issues are and you really want to sit down and have some honest conversation with a guy, sit down and go, hey, will you help me process this? 
One of the healthiest things I did was own my stuff to Jack and then came home and I owned it to my staff and I owned it to my friends and I've owned it with Brent and I've owned it with my elders and I've owned it with everybody. I got nothing to hide. People are like, oh my gosh, you're going to get fired. No, if I don't deal with this, I'm going to get fired because I'm going to do something stupid. So I'd rather just be honest about it. I'm not content to stay in it. I'm not delighting in those issues being present in my life, but I realize these are the issues that I need God's people to now pray with me and encourage me and support me, and we need that together. God's spirit, God's word, and God's people. These are means of grace that God has given us to walk out this messy process of life with God. And as much as I would love to tell you, fellas, that there's a button that we can press or a verse that you can quote, and everything changes. This side of glory, it's never going to. But don't let that frustrate you. Let that be, as it was to Paul, a thorn in your flesh to keep you from exalting yourself. I delight in my struggles. Every time I feel the desire to power up, I'm like, oh, I see you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. I don't need to be that guy. I'm just going to be you. Every time I feel the need to get angry, I go, no, no, no. I hear you, Lord. Thank you. I need you right now because I, I feel it, and I know that's not what you want. Thank you for a reminder that I need the gospel today to continue to transform me. Amen? You with me? So as you head into your cabins, as you do some discussion time, hey, can we be honest about the gold and the shadow? And can we allow God's spirit, God's word, and God's people to do a work in our life? Let's pray. Father, I do thank you that even in the midst of Abraham's disobedience, just boogering it up to the heavens, you still showed up. You were still present. You still loved him. You still cared for him. And that is not changed, that you came to seek and save the lost. And we, Lord, are top on that list. So thank you that you show up as a God of grace in the midst of our brokenness. Thank you for meeting us here. I pray for my friends here tonight who are struggling and wrestling with their own shadow of sin, the, these old habits that are hard to break, even with new life in Christ, would you give them, Lord, just encouragement and grace to walk this out, that your spirit and your word and your people would do a work in us to make us more like Christ. And so we'll thank you for the struggle, for the struggle affirms that, God, you are at work in our life, not content with us just being in neutral spiritually, but you want to work out, work out in us a greater degree of holiness that will honor you by your grace. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.